I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind at home. I'm delighted today to welcome our guest, John Holbein, author of this terrific new book, Making Young Voters. Uh, John is a professor at the University of Virginia. Delighted to have you on. Thanks for having me. And I hope you're staying well there in Charlottesville or wherever you are. We're trying to social distance and uh, stop the spread as much as possible down here. Uh, This is one of my favorite subjects of all, um, because before hosting The Open Mind, I covered the youth vote for several election cycles. Uh, Your central thesis about young voters is? Yeah, it's it's that we've misunderstood why young people don't turn out to vote for a long time. So there's been a, a, a narrative in the public uh, discourse about youth voting for a long time that sort of said that young people are disinterested in politics. They just don't want to participate, that they're apathetic and disengaged. And those young people, if they, we could only get them interested in politics, things would change. Uh, that's not true, right? No matter how you measure it, uh, be it in surveys, be it in online behavior, be it in interviews with young people, they're very interested in politics. They just really struggle to go through the process of voting and following through on their interest in politics that they have and their good intentions to be engaged. But the images coming out of recent primaries and caucuses, and even in the midst of the pandemic when we were still voting, was a lot of young faces online to vote, to either vote by machine or hand in their ballot. So some of the imagery we have is young people really desperate to vote and following through, but there's a cohort that would not follow through. Uh, But the amazing thing is the chart in your book about the upsurge and, and uptick in youth participation in 2018, which was, you know, remarkable uh, relative to youth participation in midterm cycles to date, because you point out that that's really dead on arrival. Miss, young people are missing in action every midterm cycle. To the, except, to the extent that there's a downturn in overall voter turnout, there's really just a complete layering of uh, young people. So they never show out for midterms, and they did show up for midterms in 2018. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so at least uh, 31% of young people did in 2018. So, you know, there was a lot of um, discussion about, uh, you know, the March for Our Lives movement and all the great efforts that they did to try and get out the youth vote and the many other organizations that pushed for young people to turn out in 2018. The the harsh reality is that even in that election, sort of the high watermark for a midterm election and youth voting, seven in 10 young people didn't turn out to vote. And, and the types of people who were staying home were young minorities, young socially, socioeconomically disadvantaged young people, the types of people whose voices we really want to hear in our democracy just weren't showing up still. So it was an exciting change for sure, uh, but still a lot of area uh, room for growth. But John, that mirrors the proclivities of the electorate at large, right, in terms of depression of turnout in, you know, less... Uh, affluent and literate communities. So it was much more of of a maybe a progressive step in the direction of greater voter participation. What are the dynamics at play 
this cycle of 2020 um, that might really create a tsunami you know, of interest? And um, do you think that even amid the pandemic, there's more of a motivation to follow through? Yeah, what we're seeing is that young people are um, interested in, and, and desire to participate in the process. The early data that we have from some of the primaries and caucuses that happened before the pandemic outbreak uh, occurred was not great uh, for young people still. Um, you know, despite high levels of interest on sur in survey data, uh, we're still seeing big gaps by age in, in places like New Hampshire, Iowa, and the other primaries and caucuses that have occurred. So I think there's a lot of interest out there among young people to be engaged in 2020 and, and beyond, potentially. Um, but it's, it's just not bearing fruit, right? It's, it's, there, there's some gap, and that's what our book explores, is how to get young people from a state of being sort of interested, talking about things online, mobilizing in the streets to actually get into the ballot box where their voice can make a big difference. So what do you find to be the most effective vehicle for that material action? So... Um, media campaigns, uh, conventional grassroots organizing, something else? Yeah, so it's, it's two prong, a two-pronged approach. So um, it's, it's changing fundamentally how we talk about voting and being an active citizen in schools, right? So it starts with the public school system and the school system as a whole. Uh, the public schools for a long time have had an, this um, obligation and, and responsibility to train up the next uh, generation of active citizens. And they've been doing their best, but we've shown in the book that there's, there's some evidence that suggests that they could do more. Um, so it's, it's rethinking civics education such that young people are taught the skill, skills and knowledge and experience they need to engage in politics now, rather than just focusing on sort of politics 200 years ago, you know, the founding fathers, history, those things are important, but so is talking about contemporary political issues and gaining the skills and knowledge that young people need to participate. So it's a fundamental rethinking of the civic education uh, structure, training young people in schools to be active voters. The second piece of it is rethinking the process of voting. So it has to do a lot of a lot of the reason why young people don't turn out and vote is because they see voting and registration as overly complex and difficult and foreign to them. Uh, so we show in the book that reforms that make registration easier, such as same day registration that allows young people to register when they show up um, at the ballot box, say if they missed a voter registration deadline, uh, and other uh, reforms that make registration more um, transparent and easy, uh, increase youth voter participation quite a bit. So it's number one is teaching young people the skills and knowledge they need to participate. Number two is making the voting process more streamlined, more transparent, and easier. Uh, given that young people really want to engage, these types of things will actually help them follow through on that. In that second category, you allude subtly to the idea of innovative, new innovative methods to vote. Um, of course, there is the effort underway to expand and protect the franchise through universal mail balloting every state so that young people, students, but any population can uh, mail their ballot or bring it to their local electoral um, you know, elections office do that a week in advance or if there's a window of a month in advance. Those are some technical changes to the voting system. But what about more 
ambitious project like the expansion of balloting to to be online one day. That's something we did a long podcast with Paul D. Gregorio on, on yeah. the program. Um, you know, he he is an institutional person and has worked with a lot of election commissions and administration, but he genuinely believes both because of the need to protect public health and the ability of secure technology, he believes that there should be in the next decade piloting of online balloting, online voting, and that it's been my contention covering the youth vote for many years that that's something that would more fully engage young voters. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, the evidence that we have on vote by mail suggests that young people really latch onto this reform. So there, there's great evidence out of the state of Washington, which implemented uh, its universal vote by mail system a couple of years ago, uh, that suggests that young people, when given the opportunity to vote by mail, they it increases the chances that they'll vote. They spring into action. Um, we don't have a lot of great evidence on electronic uh, voting yet, just because it's kind of a it's not, not a new idea, but it just hasn't been implemented in as many uh, locations to test it for its effects. But we do see it in places like Estonia and other uh, places in Europe, where um, some of the concerns that uh, people voice about uh, voting by uh, voting online, rather, excuse me, um, aren't, don't come to fruition. Right. So the the big concern here is about electoral security, uh, protecting the, the the process itself. As we've seen in previous elections, though. Just because we have uh, ballot boxes at polling locations doesn't mean that we are immune from electoral security issues. So I think, if, I think it's an area that has a lot of promise. In general, young people, when given the opportunity to, um, you know, uh, when voting and registration is made easier, they spring into action. So I think it would be um, consistent with the research that we've done to say that uh, something like online voting would really help them. If you're talking about mitigating the health crisis too, I Voting by mail still requires people to, you know, handle a, a great amount of uh, incoming traffic. Um, so from that perspective, too, it really is a more bulletproof um, solution to the health crisis um, and not so many transfers of um, hands and germs and as long as the virus is paralyzing communities and, and buckling hospital systems uh, so much that cities, large cities and rural communities can't, can't operate. Um, you know, it's, it's something that ought to be looked at seriously. And, you know, it would be young people, whether it's the older, the now older millennial cohort of um, tech leaders or the next generation, Gen Z, um, sort of the newest class of professionals, it would be they, I, I think, who would have to push and advocate for this. So, you know, your, your book touches on young people's redefinition of civic action as volunteerism. Um, but unfortunately, I think that those civic attitudes have not been converted into civic action in most of the institutions outside of the electoral process. So, on Facebook or Twitter and social media, of course, in the government as well. So all those, those civic attitudes are largely missing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's, 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 it's a fundamental disconnect where um, we're seeing young people mobilize in the streets and online, 
and a fairly active presence in both of those domains. Uh, but it's not translating into voting, right? There's, some, there's, there's, there's a gap between these two, right? Um, and there's a little bit of a tension, right? Like these things, if you look in survey data, the types of people who are more likely to protest or more likely to discuss politics with people online are more likely to, to vote. But there is a sizable, majority, a sizable chunk of young people who are actively involved in you know, discussing politics you know, on, online with their friends and maybe showing up to a protest. About climate change or, or, or um, gun violence in schools or whatever, whatever topic may be, but then not showing up at the ballot box. And I think a lot of organizations in this space realize this, right? So you see lots of voter registration forms being passed around at a March for Our, for our Lives rally um, or a protest for climate change. So these efforts are being made, and I think there's some um, ways to sort of build off of one another, right, at protests getting people you know, enrolled in messaging programs to text them reminders about registration deadlines, about the excitement and energy that they had when they were protesting, uh, tapping into the, those types of things. So there's a way to sort of build off of this, and we're seeing this already from some of these uh, grassroots organizations. They're really tapping into technology to try and remind young people to make sure that they uh, continue to um, be actively engaged after the protest or whatever it meant. But in these companies that are represented by what we used to call young voters, people like Zuckerberg, who are now, you know, sort of on the tail end of millennials, so they're, they're kind of, they've re retired from their young status as young entrepreneurs. There's not a lot of contribution to the civic innovation space. In other words, there's nothing incentivizing critical figures in the, in the largely monopolistic tech sector to further amplify young people's um, representation. Uh, and as long as, you know, lobbyists for, for those tech companies in the same way lobbyists for the oil companies are not really concerned about climate change, right? Those tech companies aren't really concerned about increasing that 30% from this past midterm cycle to over 50% voter participation. I mean, that leaves these enormously powerful institutions uh, without any incentive to, to uh, press forward. Now I'm not suggesting that young people are, again, and I want you to distinguish between millennials and Gen Z and how you answer this question. Sure. But it, it could be on their own initiative with their own ingenuity, like you're saying, that they see the an extension of March for Our Lives as constitutional amendments or institutional reform um, that's going to drive greater equity, economic equality, voter participation. Uh, but in an environment in which those enormously powerful institutions are not incentivizing that, uh, is there really a path forward for, for these millennials and now post-millennials? It's a great question. I mean, um, you know, <laughs> I like the parallel you drew between, you know, oil companies and, and, and climate change. That There's sort of like this, these, you know, tinkering around the edges uh, to sort of uh, try and convey uh, a certain um, concern about this. So like, you know, the, the, the analogy here is to the Facebook I voted stickers, right? You know, the things you see on election day that are, are meant to, you know, um, I think have a good intent behind them. But really what we argue in the book that it, it's not just about um, sort of 
willy-nilly, one-time mobilization messages that's going to fix our problem of low youth voter turnout. And in the United States, it is a uniquely um, uh, acute problem. Uh, the United States is one of the lowest rates of youth voter turnout in the world. Um, it's, and to make that differentiation between a lot of those march protesters and organizers, they are Gen Z. They are post-millennial. Yeah. Right. So can you, can you delineate between their civic attitudes and what I would say is the more apathetic, if you want to say baby boomer-esque uh, attitude of their predecessor? Yeah, that's right. Right. So we're, I mean, we obviously have a little more data on millennials. We've been, you know, they're in their mid thirties and now, right. That's not the image of a, a millennial that many people have when they talk about uh, this group of young people. So we're still learning about uh, the next generation of young voters. What we know thus far is actually the pattern is kind of continuing, right? Like the, the, one of the things we discovered in our book was that this is a nagging problem that has not been addressed at the level it should be. And it's been a problem for decades. I mean, literally going back to 1972 when 18 year olds were given the right to vote, you know, they, they were voting at like 30 percentage points lower than their elder counterparts. So this is a problem that's continuing to go on. And we really need to think about like structural changes that will address this. It's definitely not about like a single I voted sticker on Facebook or one phone call that or one postcard that we might mail to young people. We need to fundamentally rethink the structure that young people are facing. But of the limited evidence that we have, the trillion dollar question is, will 2018 be replicated in 2020? I mean, that because 2018 is that evidence and it's a lion's share of evidence. It's not a small portion of evidence. So the question yeah. would be, does Gen Z uh, prompt their, their fellow travelers to engage at that level again or at a greater level? And then to what extent can they influence the older young or not so young cohort? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so the verdict is out on that. But do you have any estimation uh, as to how much more potent it can get than 2018 if, if they are able to accomplish that so they're able to bring out their fellow Gen Z plus Gen Y? There, there's definitely good evidence to suggest that sort of voting builds on itself throughout the life course. So the fact that 2018 saw, you know, thousands of young people who didn't, uh, who voted, who might have not voted in a more typical midterm elections, uh, that's going to pay dividends in the future. Those people are going to continue to vote and voting is definitely transmitted across friend groups and families. So there is positive building going on. That being said, I think there are pressures that are pushing in the opposite direction, especially with the, the COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, a lot of schools are no longer meeting together, as we know. That's where a lot of voter registration programs are happening. So we have to think about like the fact that schools are going to be letting out, there's going to be a summer period, and then we're going to you know, come back to school sort of trying to catch up in the fall, and will voter registration really play? If, if we even return to some if we return at all. That's right. normalcy, and if it's remote education, that's why those two words are initiative and ingenuity. And the only vehicle other than vote by mail to do that is online or electronic. Um, so let me, let me ask you this. Um, would uh, Hillary Clinton have won in 2016 had Jon Stewart still been on the air? <laughs> it's a good question. It's, uh, it's a question pretty salient yeah. to your field. I mean, it's one of those bodies of, of media influence that had so much at least 
assumed power, if not proven power. Yeah, that's right. I'm not aware of a good study on, on the, you know, the, the, the large scale effects of, of the Daily Show. Uh, but, you know, it's very clear from political science research, the media has a huge effect, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of on the opposite side of this, right? Like Fox News, it clearly has shaped the political views and political behaviors of, you know, on this, predominantly the older crowd uh, in the United States. The, the, these media organizations have a great opportunity to encourage young people to register to vote, to be a part of this sort of like multifaceted process of, of getting people registered into the ballot box. Well, the, the underlying impetus to ask you the questions really the mainstream media narrative of false equivalency during the 16 campaign. I mean, I've traveled on some campuses. I remember being in, in Pittsburgh and in Tampa and the whole mainstream media narrative of lesser of two evils and um, your colleague in academia in Virginia, I think she's in Virginia, Rachel Bitcoiner, you know, mm -hmm. talked a lot about the, um, efforts, disinformation, and, uh, and um, persuasion campaign to try to drive young people away from the Democratic Party because of, of an obsession with uh, um, having to hit every nail um, in um, have the pedigree of, of you know, uniformity with their views. And so I ask you, about Stewart because he was someone who called the BS um, and, and Trevor Noah does that much more effectively now than when he succeeded Stewart. But that show was very different in 2016. And I think that Stewart, along with SNL, called the BS on false equivalency and in, in past elections, in past cycles, especially leading to the 2008 campaign, and I don't know if Stewart alone um, could have, could have, you know, his absence or presence could have tilted the balance. But I, there is a real question as to how much young people are going to be persuaded again that um, of the two older white candidates, um, one is um, not superior than the other. And, and, uh, and I'm wondering what the literature and, and, me, and uh, study that you've done say about how that will play out this cycle. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's pretty clear with the, the voting rates we saw among uh, young people were heavily skewed towards Bernie, right, during the primaries and uh, the, the, this election cycle. So it's, it, it is a totally viable question. And I think at this point, it's an open question. Uh, it's, it, 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 it's it, it, and kind of the million dollar question, right, is, is will young people turn out for Joe Biden now that Bernie Sanders has dropped out? of the race um, and their preferred candidate is no longer running, has endorsed um, one of the candidates. But as you know, it, it kind of depends on what the, the campaign looks like in the next uh, coming months. If this becomes a, you know, an obsession over controversy uh, like 2016 was, you might see some of the common themes um, replay themselves again. Mm -hmm. They'll play themselves in different ways though. And I'm wondering how you think that the mentality of young people will be swayed because what, what you had with Hillary Clinton would, would be different in terms of the, the counterpunch. Uh, I, I think in response to the pandemic, in response to 
you know, a, a, a clearly scientifically illiterate uh, and deficient and negligent response. And I think young people get that. Uh, I also think, interestingly, I wanted to, to maybe we can close on this idea that young people have been taught in science for a long time. We, this was due, you know, the, the next big one, um, next big pandemic, you know, we were overdue for it. And, uh, and I think that, that reality combined, you know, with sort of the, the initiative and ingenuity might lead them to, to um, not, not be as vulnerable to the kind of tactics in 2016. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the big, it's the elephant in the room that we didn't have in 2016 was this global pandemic that's led to, you know, tens of thousands. It's that fact that it's tied to biology 101, <laughs> it's really, it's tied to something inherently connected to young people because most people, even if they don't make it beyond, uh, you know, grade school or high school, you know, and, someone who's educated even just from grade school and, and then, you know, employment or high school employment, you know, that this is basic science and a failure of science seems to be something that would resonate with those educated across a wide spectrum. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly consistent with young people's um, different attitudes on climate change, right? For example, you know, I think this is a, a, a nice analog to what you're talking about, right? Young people, uh, you know, Education of climate change varies across the United States and localities for sure, but young people are, are, are much more likely to support uh, action in this area as well. So it might be the case, yes, that they're that they're definitely sensitive to uh, more sensitive to uh, this this pandemic for the reasons that you outlined. I mean, we have a long literature in political science that says that when uh, types of things like this happen, disasters on the large scale. Uh, the incumbent party uh, is punished as a result of it. Um, it's an open question, I think, as to how much young people specifically are going to be doing that in 2020. We'll have to see. But because millennials alone are the largest electoral block, they have the power to punish. And we know that, that the disease is devastating older folks. So, I mean, that combination will be interesting from your Science. Yeah, I mean, you can study, you know, the, the politics of it. Uh, and just the final seconds we have, sure. meaning the, the high points of youth political voting uh, activity were initially when young people first got the vote. And then what other cycles were, were there any market increases in, in 2008 and in 92 and 96? Uh, just tell us in the next 30 seconds which cycles proved most uh, youth-friendly. Yeah, so 2008 was the big one. That's sort of the, the high watermark of uh, uh, youth voter turnout in the last three decades. We saw it in 2004, a little, a little bit lower, a little bit less, uh, and then 1992 as well. You, you got all three of the elections there that were sort of the high watermark. But the, the, the sort of, I hate to end on a dismal note, but <laughs> the, 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 the simple fact there is, still only, you know, less than half of young people were turning out in those elections. It, this well, is a fundamental... John, I'll counter that dismal note by <laughs> feeling making young voters, uh, making young voters matter. And uh, look, if 2020 is any replication of 2018, uh, young people will be engaged in our democracy and that'll be a constructive thing. 
Thanks for providing this expert lens on the subject, John. Thank you very much. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, The Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.